Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see some faces that I have never seen before. Um, my name is Matt. If I have not been able to meet you, I have the joy of being the interim pastor here for the time being. Well, we are about uh, a week and a half from St. Patrick's Day. So I thought I'd begin with an old Irish ballad from 1864 called Finnegan's Wake. Just going to give you the synopsis of it. I won't sing it. I'll spare you that. But in the, in the ballad, Tim Finnegan, he's born, quote, with a love for the liquor, unquote. And, and in this song, he, he climbs up a ladder and falls, and he breaks his skull open, and is thought to be dead, of course. Well, the mourners at his wake, they become rowdy, right? They're singing and dancing and drinking. They're celebrating Tim Finnegan's life. And one of them bumps another and spills a whole bunch of whiskey on Tim Finnegan's body in the casket. Well, this whiskey revives him. He jumps up and joins in the song and dance with the rest of the gang. It's quite the song. Whiskey causes Finnegan's fall and also his resurrection in the song. And it's, they're being playful because in Irish, the word whiskey in the old Gaelic is ishka baha. And it actually means water of life. Now, my Gaelic may not have pronounced it perfectly. I tried to listen online to the best pronunciation. It's uh, this obvious play on words in the song, right, in the ballad. And that name, Ishkabaha, comes from the middle-aged Irish monks who would distill um, alcohol, and they called it the water of life. And the ballad plays around with this idea of libations, not just drinks. When we say libation, we mean I'd like to have a drink, but libation as in a drink offering, as in something that's poured out for, in this case, um, a dead friend for Tim Finnegan. In other cases, for the gods, for the deities. And in this accidental offering of alcohol, Tim Finnegan is brought back to life. And in our Old Testament lesson, we hear about Jacob offering this libation, this drink offering onto a rock where God had spoken these important words to him. And then in our New Testament lesson, Paul says he himself is willing to become a drink offering, a libation for the sake of the Philippian church. Now, personally, when I think of uh, pouring one out, I go to 90s hip-hop culture. I don't know if I have any... Uh, people connecting with me in this room or at home, but that's where I go. The 1991 film Boys in the Hood, which as your pastor, I cannot recommend that you watch. Um, it, it's noted with this, uh, putting this image into mainstream American culture. There's a scene where they, they pour out some for their friends uh, who have passed away. And this kind of spreads and in the culture. But really, there's this scene at the end of the film uh, that's quite powerful. 
Doughboy, who is the main character in the film, what happens is um, his brother gets, gets murdered by another gang, and Doughboy retaliates and takes the life of those who took his brother's life. Well, the next morning, it's very early, and he's walking over to his friend Trey's house to sit on the porch and chat, and he has um, some... He has malt liquor in his hand, a 40, 40 ounces of this big liquor in his hand. And he walks over to his, to his friend Trey and sort of says, you know, in remorse, this is, this is what he did. And he knows that he's now stuck in this cycle of violence. And now they're going to come and take his life. So the final scene is him sort of walking away. It's him walking back to his house. And then he stops on some grass and pours out the rest of his um, 40 in honor of his dead brother. But it's also this rich symbolism of his life was essentially poured out in honor of his brother, trying to uh, retaliate. It's really quite sad. And then uh, that image continues in, in 90s hip-hop culture with Tupac. With Tupac Shakur, he had a song in 1994 called Pour Out a Little Liquor, and it was the same idea, pouring out liquor for some friends who have, who have died too young, who have passed away. And that became so ubiquitous that when Tupac himself uh, was murdered in Las Vegas, a bunch of people, the first thing they did is they flocked to that street corner and poured out some liquor. And even still today, people who are huge fans of Tupac to honor him. They go to that same street corner and pour out a little liquor. Well, maybe Irish ballads and 90s hip-hop are not for you. That's okay. This is a, uh, a sort of piece of culture. It's a ritual that really travels the world throughout history. It dates all the way back to ancient Egypt, and uh, Dr. James Early, who was the former director of communication at the Center for Folklife Programs and Cultural Studies at the Smithsonian Institute, oh, that's a mouthful, he says, quote, there is something very basic about pouring blessings into the earth. That is where you are buried. It figures into all worldviews and all religions. We initially emerged as people living very close to the earth, and the earth provided everything we needed. We poured libations to acknowledge that our love and insights do not come solely from us, but from those who came before us. Now, some of that is certainly true for the Jewish customs of drink offerings as well, but there's also much more going on when Paul says that he will be poured out. We read the first half of this chapter last week, Philippians 2. And I said that the whole book of Philippians really revolves around verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. It's this poem that Paul um, perhaps wrote, at least tells. And in the poem, it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped again, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. 
And Paul continues on this trajectory, and he, and he says how he wants to be conformed to Jesus by being poured out himself. So let's dive in. Our text begins in verse 12. Um, which has been a sticky verse for a lot of Protestants, says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I remember when calculators were first allowed in math class or when I reached the age when I was first allowed to use them. Uh, It was amazing. All of a sudden, I could just type in the problem and get the answer. 240 divided by 60 is 40. Great. Homework done. Now the rest of my evening could be spent doing whatever I wanted. But then you'd get to class the next day, and they'd say, no, 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 no. Having the answer is not enough. The calculator may help with assurance of the answer. You know that it's technically the correct answer, but you still have to show your work. How did you work out that 240 divided by 60 is 40? How did you solve this problem? You have to show your proofs. Show your work. Paul is very simply saying, you don't have to save yourself. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that within the life of the church community, remember this is written to the community, not just individuals, you must show your proofs. N.T. Wright says, working out your salvation isn't earning salvation. It's figuring out what this business of being saved means in practice. Another uh, metaphor might be given the gift, right? Salvation, given the gift of salvation. Think of being given the gift of something very expensive. I like guitars, so let's say I'm given the gift of a very expensive guitar. Paul's saying the gift is entirely from God. You did not earn, pay for, or deserve a guitar, nor could you afford one this nice if you tried to get the money to have it, but you have one now. Learn to play it, is essentially what he's saying. Practice the gift you've been given, because the guitar is meant to be an instrument by which God's melody can be strummed to others. It does no good displayed on your wall, essentially this fancy guitar. Your salvation in the same way isn't meant only for you. It's a gift that needs to be worked out because it has ramifications to those around you. Paul's saying to work out your salvation for the sake of others, for the sake of the church community, which will have a blessing to the entire community of Philippi. Some of us, and I, and I thought this, we think that all we have to do is uh, tell others about the gift of salvation without working it out in our own lives. And let me just say, 
this might be the worst kind of evangelism possible. I mean, imagine telling someone close to you, your kids, your spouse, your friends, family member, about this amazing guitar someone gave you. They'd probably say, why don't I ever hear you playing it? Oh, well, I, I don't really know how to play it. And, you know, it's too old in my life. I'm not going to take lessons. That'd be embarrassing. And they'd say, well, I don't even ever hear you at least practicing. You've never even strummed a terrible chord. They'd probably say, I'm sick of hearing about your guitar. Play me a song already. The way we work out or practice our salvation is with fear and trembling. Because as we are working, we come into contact with the God who is actually empowering and energizing our work. It's a means of communion with God. Psalm 2 verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Living before God with this kind of fear and trembling will actually ultimately lead to joy. And so Paul continues in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The way we work out our salvation, the way we practice our salvation is to refrain from grumbling, disputing, or complaining. Now remember, this section of the letter, this whole section, beginning back actually in chapter 1, verse 27, is all about this internal conflict that's threatening to destroy the unity of the Philippian church, and therefore it's threatening to destroy any credible witness that they have to the community. And so here, Paul is referencing ancient Israel. There's a lot of language that's actually direct quotes. Um, and he's doing this to say how they actually, the ancient Israelites, were grumbling and complaining when they were in the wilderness. And this, of course, is the opposite of the self-emptying way of Jesus, who instead of grumbling, freely chooses to bear the suffering of the cross because of the joy God had set before him. Paul talks about this uh, twisted, this crooked generation. And I used to always think he's referring to my generation, right? Of course, whenever I'd read Paul talking about generation, it was mine. It was like millennials, or perhaps if you're older than me, you would think, oh, he's talking about the boomer generation or Gen X or whatever. Uh, and then I just thought, man, my generation is so terrible, but I'm going to be like this blameless child of God within it, showing a light to other people. But here's the thing. Whenever Paul is talking about a generation, he is specifically talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Almost always. Here's the direct quote from Paul. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, 
They have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. See, when the Israelites disobeyed God, when they were freed from slavery and then were disobeying God, grumbling, worshiping idols, God says, okay, you are now going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? So that this generation who has done these things perishes and does not get to enter the promised land. Only once that generation passes away do their children and their children's children get to inherit the promised land. And so when Paul is saying, don't be like this crooked and twisted generation, he's not necessarily referring to the people around them. He's saying, don't be like the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. Don't miss out, right? Don't miss out on the land of milk and honey. Don't miss out on the promise set before you of joy. I don't know about you, but, but when I think of grumbling, I often think of uh, that classic scene of like a kid on a road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or... I don't want broccoli. I want macaroni and cheese for dinner. I think of like annoying, uh, loud, just demanding what you want. But that's not really what Paul's getting at here. He's not saying don't uh, complain about what you had for dinner. It's all too easy for us then as adults to excuse ourselves. You know, th- we don't have this divisive sin. We don't complain about our dinner. But it's more like whispering. It's more like, have you heard what he did? I heard he voted for Biden. I heard she voted for Trump. Or di- did you see the way she treated her son in the nursery? Is she fit to be a mother? Or Can you believe they're letting their kids go back to in-person school or daycare? Do they even care about their kids' health? Have you heard that so-and-so is paying extra to have a person come to their house to teach their kids? They must be rich. It's a kind of murmuring or secret talk that creates this ill will against someone in the community. That's what grumbling is, according to Paul. It it chips away at the harmony of the gospel community until the only thing the onlookers hear is discord, right? Um, I thought about playing a chord on the piano, right? You have the harmony of the three notes playing at once and then playing a discorded chord where it's like, it's clearly off. And when there is this sort of grumbling and complaint within the community, that's how it sounds to other people. Even if we can't quite hear it, something's off. It's no longer a compelling song that you want to keep listening to, right? You click next on Spotify or whatever you listen to music on. It discredits our witness. The biblical scholar Gerald Hawthorne, he says, quote, The Philippians, perhaps spurred on by false teachers, 
were engaging in speculations that could only result in futile arguments that had the capacity to tear the community apart. These hurtful actions must go, and with them all other actions that promote disunity within the church. Unquote. Moses never made it to the promised land. This is one of the great tragedies of the Old Testament. He dies, if you know the story, he dies on this mountaintop overlooking the promised land. I mean, how much more irony could you get in the story? He, he dies seeing what he has essentially given his life for right before his eyes. He saw the finish line, but doesn't get there. This is part of why Paul always uses these, these running the race analogies. Paul does not want to miss out the way that Moses has, the way Moses did, right? Paul wants the Philippians not to be robbed of their joy that's theirs in Christ. And that's why he says, continuing in the verse, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I didn't see the finish line and get disqualified because I was actually cheating in my run or something like that. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The purpose of all of this for Paul is that there would be joy and gladness in the community, which true joy and gladness cannot happen in a community of people if there is division. Not different opinions, that's fine. In fact, we'd be lying if we said there wasn't different opinions and even different uh, stances on, on critical issues, but there has to be this unity even if I am to be poured out. And Paul shares this same sentiment as he encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, which I'll read. And the reason I want to read these verses is because we're not going to get to sort of the latter half of what was read. We're having all of the book of Philippians read, but obviously I'm not going to be able to touch on all of it uh, in the sermons. But the second half of these verses is about Timothy who Paul is saying, I'm going to send you Timothy, who is um, someone who is also poured out. So it's an example of the type of person there to be. And I'm sending you back, uh, however you say that name, Epaphroditus, who is also an example of someone who was poured out. Paul says this person was sick to the point of death, but even came to minister to me. They were almost poured out completely, he's essentially saying. Anyways, this is how Paul admonishes Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now, in order to understand what Paul is getting at here, we have to explore the place of the drink offering in Israel's sacrificial system. But we also have to remember that Philippi is a Roman colony. 
And drink offerings, again, were sort of ubiquitous in the ancient world and still are in a lot of cultures today. So when Paul uses this language, he'd be familiar that people are seeing all sorts of drink offerings happening in the community. So real quick, a little bit of Roman context. What I love is that so some, of, some Roman, uh, I don't know if it would have been their tombstone or whatever they had near their gravesite. Some of them had uh, chalices carved into them. And, you know, Romans did great duct work. So some of these had actual drainage down into uh, the coffin or wherever the body would be buried. So you'd pour out your, your drink offering and it would literally go down and cover the bones uh, of the body. It was like as literal as you could have a drink offering. We want the deceased to actually uh, feel this on their bones. And Tracy Prouse, uh, she's the professor of Roman bioarchaeology. Very specific. At McMaster University, she says of these Roman drink offerings, the main point was to maintain an ongoing relationship with the dead. So the family would sit and have a meal at the gravesite and share that meal with the deceased. So it was about community. But also Romans believed that they had to keep the spirits of their ancestors content. Otherwise they might become vengeful. Offering proper rituals and libations was a way to keep them happy. Unquote. So I think there's a yes and a no with how the Roman uh, sort of cultural context of drink offerings connects with what Paul is saying and with the Israelite version. So yes, Paul believed along with the Israelites that a drink offering was actually a way to share a meal in the presence of God. But no, Paul did not think that he has to give his life as a drink offering in order to keep God happy so God doesn't become vengeful. Paul doesn't believe in a vengeful God. Now, continuing on to what Israel thought. So again, there's this story. Israel's story is as a people who are freed from slavery in Egypt. And they're journeying to the promised land. Then within the story, they grumble and complain they try to find a leader who would actually take them back to Egypt as if that would be possible. But they say, you know what? We want to go back. At least we knew that we had food there. At least we knew what things were like. It wasn't so uncertain. And they're told then that their generation will not enter the promised land. And they'll spend 40 years in restless wandering. And then right after they're told this is actually when the first idea, uh, the first sort of regulation or, or rule or ritual of the drink offering, that's when it's introduced. Right after they're told, you're going to be wandering restless for 40 years. In Numbers 15, they're told this old covenant. <clears throat> they're told actually, though, not just the rules for how to do it. They're told that it's not going to happen yet. Not until you get into the promised land. They're given these rules 
And it's not going to happen until they enter the promised land. It wasn't for the wilderness. Now, this is actually a bit of good news to them, right? It serves as a reminder that a day is coming for their children when they will once again rest in God's presence. And this is because biblically speaking, drinking wine is a sabbatical activity. It's a sign and means of rest and celebration. Right? So you don't do that in the wilderness. Only after the Lord has defeated the enemies of the people and given his people a restful dwelling in the land, would he accept the wine of the drink offering. The drink offering then is this promise of eventual victory and settlement in the land. It's a sign also of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. You see, the people weren't rejoicing and resting in the wilderness, but God is so faithful that neither was he. He didn't say, you're going to wander for 40 years, but give me some wine so I can sit and enjoy it. He was working towards their deliverance as they were wandering. Peter Lightheart says, quote, if God's peculiar people were to be 40 years without wine, then God himself would refrain from drinking wine for those same 40 years. <clears throat> wine is an eschatological drink. It requires time for it to re reach its maturity. So God fasted from wine until his people reached their eschaton, the land where huge clusters of grapes grew. He wandered with his people, sharing in their sufferings for the joy that was set before him. Though the Israelites would wander for a generation, they could take comfort in the assurance that God was wandering with them. Unquote. Second, in the Old Covenant, a drink offering was always complete. So as I was learning about some of the other cultures, um, ancient Egypt, the way they practiced this, the Greeks, the Romans, it was almost always that you would pour out a bit of your drink and then consume the rest. Right? You, were, you were sharing it with the deceased or with the deity, and then you were enjoying the rest. But in the Israelite law, you're pouring out the whole thing. It's not that you're sort of sharing it. You're pouring out the whole thing in the Old Covenant. And what you would do is you'd pour the entirety of it on a, a burnt offering, on something that was burning, whether it was an animal that you sacrificed, uh, perhaps a grain offering, Something burning, the smoke is rising, which always symbolized this ascent into the holiness of God. And then you would pour out, usually it would be a, a, some amount of a hen, which is like a gallon of wine. So you'd pour out this gallon of wine on top of what's already burning, and it would cause more smoke. It would cause uh, an even more attractive aroma, and it would sort of be like adding to, magnifying, um, multiplying what's already rising up. That was what the drink offering would do. Created even more smoke and a more pleasant aroma. And in the Old Covenant, the priests, um, they were reserved portions of the offerings. If you read this in, in Leviticus, in Numbers, the priests, they'd be fed, actually, by people's offerings. So you'd, you'd bring 
a cow or something and you'd sacrifice parts of it and the priests would get to enjoy parts of it in the tabernacle because they were never given land in the Old Testament, but they were given bits of these sacrifices so that they could uh, survive. That was their payment. But the wine, they never got to have any because it was poured out completely. And this was because it was only the Lord who would drink of this cup. So even in the promised land, the Lord is now partaking of the wine, but it's only for him. And in the scriptures, wine is said to, to make the heart glad. Right? So in the old covenant, drink offerings were only for the gladness of God. But... In the new and better covenant, you see, Jesus shares his cup with us. If you read the Last Supper, Jesus is intentionally sharing the cup. We literally partake in the gladness of God. Listen to verses 17 and 18 again. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, so again, causing more smoke, a more pleasing aroma, more and more to rise to heavens. Paul says, I am glad. He gets to partake in the gladness of God. And I rejoice with you all because your sacrifice as well. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We are partaking in the cup of salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, as it is God who works in you. This working out is much like a pouring out, like a drink offering. And in the new covenant, God shares the wine that makes the heart glad. So he and us can rejoice together. You see, Paul longs for the Philippian church to be united. And he's not naive. <laughs> he's not naive. He knows that that will mean giving away any status or power or privilege that you have. He knows that will mean giving up resources. He knows that will mean giving up influence. That will mean giving up control. And for each and every one of us, there are certain one of those things that are much harder to give up. And there are certain one of those things that are more ours that we're being called to give up. Paul's not asking for the most oppressed Philippians to still then become more and more servants until they're just obliterated. He's asking for the ones who have to give. We all have something. He knows that for the Philippian church to be united, it will mean being emptied out like Christ. It will mean being poured out like wine before God. But he also knows and wants the Philippians to know that the wine that's poured out is poured out before Jesus. And we share in his sufferings, Paul says, 
but we also share in his joy. So when we pour out our power or our control, we are filled again with joy. Joy that God shares with us, even and especially as we share it with one another. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.